This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome to this week's Race to Value. This week, we're going to talk about the American dream. The American dream is the hallowed ideology that any individual can advance his or her state of being through ambition and hard work. It defines the American psyche. Historian James Truslow Adams used the phrase in his 1931 book, The Epic of America, in which he wrote, the American dream is that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. When I think of someone in healthcare with a dream plan that is based on consumerism and accountability for health outcomes, I think of Janice Powers. Eric, I really think you're onto something there. Janice Powers is so intent on improving healthcare that she's completely designed a new system. Her dream plan is to eliminate health insurance altogether enabling individuals to redirect their financial resources into personal accounts that fund their lifetime healthcare needs. Her ideas are outlined in the Amazon best-selling book, Healthcare Meet the American Dream. And she's also recently founded the company Longitudinal Healthcare to bring the ideas from her book to reality. I think our listeners today are in for quite a thought-provoking conversation. Let's hand it over to Janice as she joins us today as our guest in this Race to Value. Janice, welcome to Race to Value. We're so glad to have you joining us today. I am very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Well, Daniel and I have both been following and enjoying your podcast, and we're excited to have you add your voice to ours. The healthcare system is really in need of a solution. And that solution, you say, must include affordability for consumers, as well as incentives that appropriately align behaviors, both for care providers, as well as consumers. Now, I want to acknowledge I've been intentional in saying consumer rather than the patient, because today we really want to talk to you about this consumerization of the healthcare industry. And I'm really excited about your perspective. And I think our listeners are going to be grateful for uh, checking out today's episode. So, Janice, as a 
healthcare visionary and an entrepreneurial disruptor, you are absolutely tenacious in your advocacy for the American healthcare consumer. And I see you being someone that is a value-based care innovator. However, you are somewhat skeptical about some of the current value-based care models. And for example, I was reading your book, uh, Healthcare Meet the American Dream, and you made this compelling argument that bundled payments don't really improve outcomes because many of the cases with more predictable outcomes are just shifted to a outpatient setting, whereby creating only incremental improvement in health value, because since those cases should already have been expected to have good outcomes. And you make reference to also the administrative cost burden that's placed on providers within bundled payment arrangements because they only get one payment and they have to split that out. And so it got me thinking a lot. And of course, here at the ACLC, you know, we're, we're always thinking about emerging payment models. And, you know, we even had a, a brief that came out that summarized the recent LAN virtual summit where Seema Verma said CMMI has 54 payment models but only a handful appear to be working, but ACOs clearly are working and they've generated significant savings over the program lifespan. But I really understand where you're going with it. And I think your skepticism is really based on, it really comes down to just having a third-party payer in and of itself, particularly with employer-sponsored insurance. You really don't see that as being a sustainable financial model because it removes the consumer from their irreplaceable role as the ultimate insurer of value. And then your personal crusade to champion consumer-centered value-based care, your self-proclaimed mission is really to eliminate traditional health insurance. And that's a bold mission, but one I know is firmly rooted in your belief that we have to have a structural change that addresses the financial side of the business. So for my first question today, I just wanted to ask you if you could provide our listeners with a high-level overview of your dream plan which is really your start from scratch blue sky vision for how healthcare really should be. Yeah, well, thank you for that intro. And I was chuckling in there a little bit about the, you know, myriad payment models and, you know, just how convoluted a lot of the system is. And before I even get into this, because there's going to be a lot of commentary about, you know, challenging the current system. There are so many people, I mean, generations of people who have done so many amazing things, both on the private and public sector side. And so one of the, the first things I wrote in the book is that it's our job, not just to critique what people do, but to come up with other solutions. And so I would like to acknowledge with respect so much of the work that's been done, but we have a lot more to do. So when I wrote the book, Healthcare Meet the American Dream, it came out two years ago in October of 2020. So it came out in 2018. I had been critiquing the healthcare system and I thought, you know, what if we just, it's so broken that it's almost like unfixable. So what if we just started from scratch? What would that look like? And, you know, a couple of things bubbled up. One of them that you alluded to is this idea about employer-sponsored insurance which is how half of Americans, over half of the Americans get their insurance to their employer, especially obviously not the uh, Medicare population. Well, why do we even need insurance? I mean, if you really think about it, the concept of insurance implies that there we're supposed to be mitigating risk using a, a financial model to cover sort of the unknown. But now that we know so much about genetics and predictive analytics, we should be predicting what people are getting and when we do that, we don't need insurance the way we used to anymore. What's happened in America is that we don't have insurance, we have coverage. 
And it, in doing that, we have created this one size fits all system that creates a ton of waste in administration. And I would like to eliminate as much of that as possible. So my dream plant concept was basically completely decentralizing the system. And the book is a theory really, but every time I look at my business, my company Longitudinal Healthcare, which was created from the book, anytime I'm stumbling with implementing the, the company's products, I go back to the book, <laughs> interestingly, and I go back to the theory. But the idea is that we should be able to predict people's outcomes and once we know what those outcomes are, instead of insuring for the care or putting all of this stuff in a plan, we should be able to pay direct to provider and we should be creating these individualized budgets for people. And you know, then we would have an element of catastrophic insurance really for literally the unknown, what you should have insurance for. And this certainly works a lot better in the younger population before people get sick, before people get older, you know, because we do get sicker when we get older. But one of the important statistics that I, I quote a lot, uh, and this is from the Kaiser Family Foundation, they have a partnership with the Peterson Foundation, and they've got some really cool statistics. One of them talks about the sort of spread of healthcare costs across sort of all Americans. And if you were to put on one end of the spectrum, have the person who spends the most amount of money on healthcare, and this is all ages of people, so this is everybody. You put the person who's spending the most on one end, and then you go all the way to the other end to the person who's spending the least, which is probably $0. If you group the people who spend the most, that's 5% of the population, that top 5% of people spends 50% of the dollars. But the bottom 50% of people spends 3% of the dollars. So you've got half of Americans who are spending so little on healthcare, yet there's this mass subsidization. So in this dream plan, I'm trying to pull away from that and do much more of an individualized model. So that's the blue sky view. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk a lot more about the challenges around implementing that. And you know what I'm seeing as I bring this idea to market. Janice, thanks for that overview. I think one of the first questions that comes to mind is what is the government's role in healthcare? You know, currently they're very involved. Obviously, there are big implications on, on how that changes. And so you've been pretty vocal about the four main challenges that we see with government in healthcare. And so just to talk through these really quick, first you cite a main reason for lack of consumerism is because government controls 45% of the money that's spent on healthcare. With government as the main purchaser, and it's fixing that price to the people, it's not really a free market situation anymore, as the word consumer implies. Second, the government's really overspending on Medicare. We know the program is heading towards insolvency. This, According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities 2019 report, the Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund will only remain solvent through 2026. And then at that point, Incoming payroll taxes and other revenues will be insufficient. It will we'll only cover 89% of Medicare hospital insurance costs. And then by 2043, only 73% of those costs will be covered. Third, Americans have really kind of rejected this idea of a single payer option. In your view, we're too big. We're too diverse. We can't really have a one-size-fits-all healthcare system anymore. And, and the divisiveness in Congress to act cooperatively, as you say, for decades really limits our ability to have a government system. 
And fourth, state government really isn't necessarily a better option. Uh, according to recent reports from Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program Payment and Access Commission, low Medicaid reimbursement rates cause doctors to refuse to take Medicaid payments, which limits those underserved patients' ability for uh, choosing providers and building trusted relationships with those providers. So given these challenges that you've identified with government and healthcare, uh, what do you suggest is the appropriate role of government in your vision? And how do we make the changes to get there? And do you think we could do it in six years so that we could beat the uh, Medicare hospital insurance trust fund deadline? Well, I'm an optimist. So I'd like to say, yes, we can help Medicare not continue to bloat and expand its budget and its expenditures. And the the only way to do that is to ration care. So, I mean, no one likes that term, but that's what has to happen. And I think we all are aware what happens with end of life. There are a lot of expenditures that are incurred that aren't needed. My generation is starting to see our parents, you know, both of my parents have passed away. And I hear more and more stories about sort of every element of the system acting not with the best ethics or with the best treatments in mind. So patients don't want to challenge doctors. Doctors have their Hippocratic ethical oath to to keep people alive, yet they're spending all of this money. And and somewhere there's got to be some sort of sanity here. And even the patients, it's interesting. My mother passed away about a year and a half ago and she was a nurse and she was so afraid to die. And so our, this whole end of life thing, someone's got to get their heads around managing that and rationing the care and being a little more sensible about giving somebody who's on their last legs chemotherapy is just a waste of money. And we need to let people die with dignity. But bigger question, I think the government's role is to regulate and not manage. I don't think, you know, we need the government to put rules in place to make sure that patients are safe and to give guidance, but I am not a believer that they should be running the whole thing. In fact, anything that we can do to make the governmental programs sort of restructure them, I think is gonna help a lot. One of the things interestingly in uh, that I would like to be able to do in my dream plan is to have people actually opt out of Medicare. If we're looking at Medicare Advantage programs where the government's giving these capitated rates to manage a certain population, well, why can't they give that money to me? Why can't individuals get their own payment? And then we'd sort of have a, have a system where we basically continue what we've got going with some sort of catastrophic insurance that's separate through the private market, but a little more management of the system to have people sort of opt out of Medicare. That's a, a generational shift in ideology, but I think it's something to consider more practically I think that the government should require that preventive care visits, annual preventive care visits are mandatory. We talk so much about how the the problems with chronic illness and how so much can be prevented. And obviously obesity and being overweight is such an issue. A lot of that is preventable. And I don't understand why if we're giving folks Medicare, we're giving public health coverage, or even your employer is paying for your care, People should have to go to the doctor once a year. And part of it is, a lot of it is engaging people. There's this major disassociation with our health because, you know, ironically, with the Affordable Care Act requiring pre-existing conditions to be covered, which is arguably the most 
compelling aspect of the program and has saved so many lives because people can now get coverage to care that, that they weren't able to before. There's also this element of, well, it really doesn't matter what kind of health status I have because I'm going to get coverage. And that is definitely the wrong attitude. And so if we have to go talk to a doctor every year, we have better health data to manage people and folks are more engaged. I mean, you have to sort of face up to the fact and talk to a doctor every year. And then it encourages that whole doctor-patient relationship, which is so important. So I definitely think that that would be a great thing to do. I think there's some elements about the Medicaid program. Like for example, I don't know why Medicaid is partially funded by states. I mean, I get why it is, but then it creates a different health system in every state. So I'm in Texas. We rejected the Medicaid expansion. I'm not you know, the biggest fan of Medicaid, but it's definitely better than nothing. And the idea that we Texans, even though I was born in New York, it's kind of crazy to say that, you know, we pay federal taxes and that goes out and gets distributed to all these other states. And we're not getting our benefit back from that because we won't expand the program because we want to keep our state budget balanced and all these other things. And then we have the highest uninsured rate and the highest uninsured number of state residents in the, in the country. It just, it doesn't make any sense. There's also a part of Medicaid and I'll get into some numbers here, which I think are so interesting. And these are from 2014 and they're also from the Kaiser Family Foundation. If you look at how big the Medicaid program is and who it covers, 9% of the enrollees in Medicaid are elderly. So that's the dual eligible enrollees. So 9% of them, of the number of people are the elderly, yet they spend 21% of the dollars. 14% of the people who are enrolled in Medicaid are disabled, yet they spend 40% of the dollars. So between the aged and the disabled, that's 25% the number of people, but it's 60% of the dollars. I would love to see those folks separated out from the children who are 43% of the enrollees and the adults. You know, just the, the lower income people, I'd like them separated out from the folks who are disabled and aged because they're two totally different populations. And, you know, if you can't sort of measure stuff, you can't manage it. And I think it would be helpful to potentially split some of that out. And two final things. One is I think it would be great if they just did a program where someone went in and said, we're going to cut half the regulations because the reporting that goes on every time I talk to a hospital executive, that's just, it's so onerous. We're going to talk a bit about price transparency in a minute, but I do think as a final thing that we might start to look at the not-for-profit status for hospitals. And this is a real bee in my bonnet because hospitals make money by treating the sick, right? They get reimbursed for it. Yet they have this sort of mission and vision, a lot of the not-for-profit ones, to serve the community. So they, they don't pay taxes because they have to show that they're providing a community service that's you know, equivalent to the value of what their tax bill would be. So then what happens is you start to have this bloated infrastructure of sort of public health and outreach stuff that is non-revenue generating that it sort of competes with the hospital's real goal, which is to bring patients in and treat them. And then on top of that, when some hospitals are demonstrating the value that they're giving in charity care, they're using their charge master rates, which are the highest rates that there are that like nobody pays. 
And that's what they're using to demonstrate the value of the charity care they're giving. Somebody's got to go in and take another look at that and either figure out a way to partially tax or restructure this so that we're getting the real value out of the not-for-profit hospitals. Because if you're looking at organizations like HCA, which can actually generate a profit and pay millions of dollars in taxes and operate in the same markets as not-for-profit hospitals, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, Janice, very, very insightful. And you spoke a great deal about the government's role in healthcare. And I thought we would shift gears and talk a little bit about the private sector. And I just think if we're going to usher in this new age of digital mobile consumerism in the healthcare industry, the private sector is going to have to step up in a big way to bring that level of innovation into the hands of the patients so that they can be fully engaged in managing exactly how their healthcare dollars should be spent. And there's a lot of digital health innovation going on right now, really focusing on patient-centered and consumer-focused enablement and solutions. Recently, I was listening to your Powers Report podcast, and you referenced Teladoc and Livongo, but you brought up a really important point that many of their services aren't consumer-focused because they interface actually with a model that's dominated by insurance and healthcare systems. And you appropriately raised the point that these disruptors are not selling their services directly to the consumer, and they should instead start thinking about that in order for consumer-focused digital health companies to maintain their contracts, they do have to maintain their end users and the consumers have to be satisfied. And there was a quote that you cited, I think on your podcast, you said the true definition of a consumer is someone who purchases goods and services for personal use. So I think this, as I understand a fundamental premise in your dream plan is that B2B solutions will eventually make it to the consumer, whether it's through insurance or a payer or provider, but that's not really the way to go when creating a consumer-driven transformation of the health system. So can you elaborate on why you feel that maybe B2C services and products are more suitable than B2B services? And is it the right thinking in terms of how we go ahead and, and go about incentivizing the right behaviors at the consumer level to improve health outcomes? Yeah, this is a really critical area that is complicated, but I feel very, very strongly we need to shift more to making better healthcare consumers. That's one of the things that my company, Longitudinal Healthcare, wants to do is to make better healthcare consumers because patients are not doctors. So this is one of the biggest challenges around this idea that you know, we're going to shift all the dollars to consumers to make these decisions. They don't have the ability right now. And a lot of the reason that they don't is they don't have the right tools to do it. But before I get into that, I mean, one of the biggest problems with the B2B market where you come up with a product, you sell it to an employer. I mean, it makes sense. And I hear this a lot from investors as I'm trying to raise money for my company you know, they want, they really push startups to go into the B2B environment because selling to consumers is hard and you go where the money is and barring Medicare and Medicaid, which are, you know, paid by the government, it's the employer. And if the employer is paying for the healthcare, then that's your customer. And so when you reference Teladoc and Livongo and, you know, these are, they say they're marketing to the consumer, but they're not. The one who's paying for that is going to be the employer. And the reason the employer wants to pay for these services is they want to help ensure that their employees are healthy. The problem with that, that we've seen with a lot of these wellness programs, 
is that they're short-sighted. And it's very difficult to measure outcomes in a year when you're talking about healthcare. Because cancer could come in a year and you could say it's because the person was a smoker, it's because they were overweight, or maybe they just got cancer, you know, and it was just a genetic outlier or hand of God, however you want to describe it. Year over year, it doesn't make sense to be measuring outcomes when employees shift year over year and they don't all work for the same employer year after year. So using these metrics, that's why the, the B2B model and these health outcomes are is just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's why our company is called Longitudinal Healthcare because cancer doesn't care what month it is. It doesn't care what point in your insurance or how much of your deductible you've satisfied. It hits you whatever. And the cost of care doesn't fit into a year either. So when you're thinking about this stuff, you need to think, you know, over the course of your life. That's why this dream plan, the idea for our company is to have a longitudinal budget for what's going to happen, have an idea and an expectation of what you're going to see. So you can take the preventive care and try and forestall or prevent any of these things from happening. Nobody's on the market trying to do that on a year over year basis because it's counterproductive. And that's why I think a lot of this stuff needs to go into the consumer market, or at least in a market that is structured in a way that enables people to have more control of their own health instead of all these different constituents trying to manage it. Janice, your dream plan vision, I love what you're saying, the longitudinal health care plan. It's this perspective of long-term thinking and planning. And I think a cornerstone of your dream plan is this lifetime healthcare account that you just referenced. And it's kind of a cross between a personal health record and an investment vehicle. So you've got consumers who manage their money and manage their own health through the course of their lives. So it's not really an HSA, so to speak, but you envision the longitudinal healthcare plan to have three components that I think are foundational and would love for you to speak more about. And number one is it's a conditions timeline that's informed by genetics analysis that you mentioned a little earlier. Number two, a financial commitment that attaches cost to the timeline. And number three, a customer action report. And so I'm hoping you can help our listeners understand how these integrated components work together to enable this longitudinal healthcare plan. And how would this replacement payment strategy work within the context of the consumer, the employer, you know, public and private programs that are out here today? Great question, and this allows me to elaborate a little more on what I talked about right at the beginning and get a little more tactical. You know, we talked about where the money comes from. If you look at the healthcare for anyone who's not on Medicare, like I said, over half of them are getting their insurance to their employer. The amount of money they get varies on where they work. That employer contribution varies based on the relative wellness or sickness of who's in that employee pool, because the smaller the employer, the more they're trying to sort of titrate how much money they have to spend to cover the care for all of their employees. So that the actual dollar amount differs depending on where you work. But by and large, if you're young and healthy, you're subsidizing the care for the folks who are older. Things just happen when you get older. And, you know, we, the numbers show that. What I would like is for, you know, the employers give a flat rate for coverage for their employees. I would like the employee to take that dollar amount 
And we as Longitudinal would like to be the fiduciary agent and help manage that money. So you would put the money into your employer through a tax-free vehicle, and I can go into that, but <laughs> you know, we can structure that. The employer would give the money to our company, and then we would work with the employees to create this longitudinal healthcare plan, which would, you know, we'd use not just genetics, but we talk to folks to create this sort of cl clinical protocols. So there are some people who really like surgery. There are some people who don't. There are some naturopaths, like there's different ways to treat a lot of different things. We'd like to create a care plan for what may happen based on what people are more attuned to want to do. And then we would price that out. And the idea would be that you'd have this, that's what this conditions timeline would be. It would sort of say, you know, given your family history, given the fact that you have a stressful job, given the fact that, you know, you're a smoker, you're 30 pounds overweight, you know, we project you're going to get up, probably going to get a heart attack uh, or have a heart issue sometime in your late 50s, early 60s. Here's what you can do. So this idea that you'd have this customer action report that every year when you went back to your doctor, it'd be like, you know, if you lost the 30 pounds and quit smoking, this heart attack that we thought you might get in your early 60s, that's going to get pushed out and it may not come at all. And by the way, it's going to save you $100,000 or $150,000. And so by having this budget, we're able to actually put a dollar figure on your preventive care, on you taking care of yourself. And the idea would be that that this is all in your fund for you. And there are going to be things that are going to happen later. You know, that's just life. And it's not all going to happen when you get on Medicare. Folks get cancer. They, they need a knee replacement. They need a hip replacement. But we should be able to afford these things if we've been saving the money and we know this stuff is coming in our own accounts. And we start to pay for this stuff a little more out-of-pocket director provider at rates that aren't as ridiculous as they are now. So that's kind of the whole philosophy of how these things would all work together. A final element of it is that we would like to be investing this money. So if you start our program in your 20s, 30s, well, you've got 20, 30 years of investment income because you're putting more in and your employer is contributing more in than you need. The idea would be not oh, I'm going to go spend that. I'm going to go, you know, it's sort of like I've satisfied my deductible. I might as well go get a knee replacement because, you know, my knee hurts. That's not the philosophy at all. The idea is you're going to need that money later when some of these things are going to happen as you get older. So we'd like to be able to invest the money for you so that there is more money later. We'd like to use the time value money to make your money go, go farther. That's really, you know, the investment element of that. Well, Janice, I think so many aspects of the dream plan are truly revolutionary. And with that, of course, comes a bit of controversy. However, one thing that you advocate for in the dream plan is pricing transparency. And that seems to be almost universally supported in our society. There was a recent study that came out by the Harvard Harris poll, and it said nine in 10 people agree with that as a political position. They believe that the government should require hospitals and insurers to disclose prices. And this includes myself. I mean, I, I do believe that pricing transparency is absolutely necessary to fix some of the more serious dysfunctions in America's healthcare sector. And as I understand in your work as an entrepreneur, you've spent considerable time really developing a tool that can help people understand 
whether they are overpaying or underpaying for their health benefits. And more important than just this kind of moment in time type of analysis, you're really seeking to facilitate a consumer level understanding of how much a person in their employer should individually pay into their personal health account over that person's life versus how much they spend on care during that time. Can you tell our listeners just a bit more about your position on price transparency and this over-under cost calculator that you're developing for healthcare consumers? I'm particularly curious as to how this tool would help consumers with serious illness better manage their care needs. And then lastly, what would be needed to make this vision really come into fruition and bring pricing transparency into reality? I love this topic. It's such a great topic because as you said, everybody feels that they, you know, that the prices are are absolutely nuts. Let me respond first to the over-under calculator. Uh, The over-under is, it's, I wouldn't call it a gimmick, but it's more of an educational aha tool, sort of when you think about where all your money's going. We've developed it. It's going to go on our website pretty soon. And the idea is to it's part of our branding because obviously we're a company that is very much into not just predicting what your outcomes are that that's almost the easy part the harder part is the financial side i mean that's the toughest part and you know we're sort of the nexus of those two so this over under calculation was designed to let people understand what we want them to be thinking about it's a free calculator You put in your employer contribution, if you know it, if you have one, what you contributed, and we can, you know, estimate these kinds of things. And then, you know, your age, and then it asks you if you've been admitted to the hospital, used emergency services, if you're on any medications, like very basic, non, you know, we're not trying to get into anybody's privacy stuff, because it is a free calculator. And we're able to take some data from the Healthcare Cost Institute, which is publicly available, and make some estimates based on where people live and their sex on how much the care that they would have needed or what average is, what the average would be for somebody like them. And compare that typical cost expenditure to what's going into the system in their premium payments and out-of-pocket spending. And if they've overpaid, meaning I, you know, paid $600 in premiums and, you know, my employers put in, you know, $1,500, but I've used very little, then I've overpaid. And if I've used a lot, then I've underpaid. And it may vary from year to year, but it just, it's one way to get people to start thinking about this subsidization that's going on and to get some clarity around spending. It's less about pricing and really more about spending transparency. I think as far as price transparency goes, one of the the hardest parts, you know, there's a lot of resistance. Providers, they don't want to put the pricing out because that's obviously trade secrets with the rates that they've negotiated for. So all that becomes public if they've got to disclose the rates that they are giving to insurers. But there is some legitimate concern around putting the prices out there because a lot of this, like, it just doesn't make sense to a consumer. For example, and I think this was part of the Affordable Care Act, the charge master pricing for hospitals is supposed to be made public. And it varies by state, whether you can get this information. California actually has all the hospitals charge masters, like in a file that you can download. It's great that they've coordinated but it's useless information because it's charge master pricing and it's, you know, got all these codes in it that general, like regular people cannot understand. 
And there is a big difference between price transparency from a consumer consumption perspective for anything that's expensive, right? Because their money isn't going to go towards a craniotomy. Like as a consumer, I literally shouldn't care what the price for that is because that's why I have insurance. I care about the stuff that I'm actually gonna pay for myself, either because my insurance isn't gonna cover it or because it's part of my deductible payment. And so in the world where my company is going, we wanna be getting price transparency on really anything that's under $10,000. You know, any of these like high volume, lower dollar procedures and tests and lab work and stuff like that, that should be very, that it's really commoditized. That stuff, there should be total price transparency on that. And the interesting thing is that even with that, even with like an MRI, there's not just an MRI. And this is something that consumers don't understand that, you know, you can have an MRI with contrast. You can have it without, you can have it done both ways. You can have it for different parts of your body. And so there's a a lack of education on the consumer side with understanding what these prices mean. And then a lack of total resistance on the provider side to not wanting it out there because then providers have to deal with, with people not understanding, you know, why am I, why do I have to pay this amount of money? One example I give a lot is this knee replacement example. And even a knee replacement for a lot of the charge is going to be covered by insurance, but there's still going to be a big chunk of it that you're going to have to pay out of your pocket for deductible. But if you're in Austin and you go to one of these so-called price transparency, like healthcare blue book or anything like that, they've pulled data off the claims database So they're not real prices, right? This is what insurers received for payment. And there's a range from like $17,000 for a knee replacement to $54,000 for a knee replacement. And if you're a consumer, you look at that and you think, gosh, like why are these people ripping us off? A knee replacement should just be $17,000. But in what we do with our product is we take your health status into account when we're doing some of this pricing. So if you're obese, if you are 55, if you have a heart condition, if you have comorbidities, you're probably not gonna be able to do your knee replacement at an ambulatory surgery center in an outpatient environment. You probably are gonna have to be in a hospital. You're probably gonna spend the night and that right there is gonna double your, your cost of care. So there has to be an element of interpreting these prices that involves not just explaining what the codes mean and how they group together, but also, interestingly, and I think much more exciting for us, curating the prices for people based on their health status. And so that's an area where we are you know, really excited to be in because then we can explain to people what it is about them that makes the prices what they should be. Janice, I'd like to explore some challenges around the consumerization of healthcare based on, and the first one I'd like to think about with you is the economic principle of moral hazard. The term moral hazard refers to this premise that there's a lack of incentive to guard against risk when the person is protected from the consequences of the risk. So in our current health economy, this plays out as patients that receive insurance actually purchase more healthcare once they become insured. And so conventional theory, health economists regard these additional healthcare purchases as inefficient because they represent care that's worth less to consumers than it costs to produce. 
So let's explore this concept in your consumer model. And if consumers are empowered to make healthcare decisions, the question is, will they make the right ones? And if they make the wrong decisions, let's say they can't afford the medical care that they eventually need, then does that cost become everybody else's problem? How does consumerism in healthcare work if we've got a subset of the population that is relatively unhealthy, that makes poor choices and does not spend their money responsibly? Yeah, this is obviously a really important aspect to what we're trying to do, because if we're trying to create these individual personalized plans and give people the accountability and responsibility for spending the money, they could just not do it. You know, what happens then? So I think we have to segment the groups in a perfect world. I think it would be in, in, in theory, if everybody had one of these longitudinal healthcare plans, the government would fund the plans for people who couldn't afford their care and employers and individuals would, you know, would, it would be the same funding mechanisms. It just would be spent and delivered through this longitudinal healthcare plan instead of this, you know, subsidized contracted model that we have right now. I think there are going to be some people who are never going to be able to afford paying for their care, just like it is now. But I have always said that, and there's a lot of dimensions to answering this question, I totally believe that people should be paying for their primary care. And I know that that is the complete opposite <laughs> of what we've been doing for, for decades, but what we've been doing for decades isn't working. And you know, if we keep doing the same thing over and over, then we got to wonder what's going on. But one of the things that fascinates me, and there's a chapter in my book about this, about the different payment models and how we should be paying for different types of healthcare differently. If you look at the fact that so much of what people want to insure are the commoditized, high volume, low dollar experiences. And you know, if you look at any of these new fangled insurance plans, these startups that come out, they're like, it's free primary care. And you know, we're going to cover all this stuff. Well, of course you're going to cover it. It doesn't cost anything. It, it makes no sense to be using a reimbursement model where we have all of this administrative costs to cover all of that and contract for it when people should just be paying for it. It just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And when, you know, economists always say, well, let's cover this stuff and then people will use it. Well, people don't, they don't use preventive care. And, you know, there's some information about that. Like the CDC has got this ambulatory study that talks about how many doctor visits there are. And when you look at all the doctor office visits, about a quarter of them are for quote unquote preventive care. But then when they break down preventive care, it includes all kinds of stuff like screenings and prenatal visits. You know, that's like six to 10 visits a year. To me, a preventive care visit is I'm going to the doctor, sitting down, having a physical and having a conversation about my health. And interestingly, I have spent the last almost two years now without an ACA approved plan. So after the Tax and Jobs Act passed and, you know, there was no penalty for not having health insurance, I bought a short-term plan and I have been paying out of pocket for everything else. And I am so much more engaged in what goes on because I'm paying. So when I go to a doctor, obviously I'm, you know, I know a lot about the industry and I'm doing this as a, a guinea pig and I'm obviously very risk-loving and that's not everybody and it shouldn't be everybody, but there is an element of because I'm paying for it, I'm the consumer, that I want to get my money's worth out of it. 
And we've lost that. You know, we cover stuff for people and then they either don't use it or then when their deductible's covered, then they go and do all kinds of stuff just for the heck of it because they feel like they're not paying for it. That whole philosophy has got to go away. Now, this real idea of moral hazard, which is legit, which is that there are people who just don't care. I think that there's got to be some sort of penalty which comes into the, the rationing of care. We've got to get to an environment where, and by rationing, I'm not talking about you have cancer and so we're going to ration who gets chemotherapy. This is like, do we really need as many knee replacements as we do? I mean, there are all kinds of studies that are showing that so many of these knee replacements are done and they're not needed. And now, because knee replacements can be done in the outpatient environment and the costs have come down, they're having them earlier, which means they're going to have more than one in their lifetime. You know, there's a lot of overutilization and we need to take a look at these things. And I would say for the folks who have not done a good job and who, for whatever reason, if they're overweight, if they're smoking, I do think that people should have to lose weight before they get a knee replacement. I mean, if the outcomes are better, if you're healthier and if you've done rehab beforehand and if you are not obese and to take the efforts to be healthier, to make those changes, I think that people should be rewarded for those things. And folks who don't should have to suffer some sort of consequences. That's sort of my view on the moral hazard aspect of it. It's never going to go away. But I do believe that in a model like ours, if you think about what are the contributors to health outcomes, behavior is 40% of it. And so if we don't accept that some people are going to do things that are good and some people are going to do things that are bad, you know, we've got to recognize that. But if 60% of it are some other things that we can get our hands around, then we can start to ferret out who's not healthy because of socioeconomic factors and genetics versus who's not healthy because they're just not trying. And I'd like to be able to separate that out so we can get care to the people who really need it, who can't help the situation that they're in. Well, Janice, you did such a great job in explaining how we go about addressing the concerns that revolve around the choice of the person. But I think about the challenges that are not related to choice, but to circumstance. For example, these past few months dealing with COVID-19, a lot of awareness has been raised around the fact that the healthcare system is just absolutely inequitable. I mean, Black, Indigenous, and people of color are empirically showing, it, it has just been proven that they are receiving worse care and worse outcomes. And there's no question that there is systemic racism for which we need to be aware and, and, and resolve as a society. Additionally, people who are of lower income also face disproportionate poor outcomes. And there are some who feel that this may not be the time for less government. Instead, they argue that we need a government that will work to meet out the justice and the equality that's needed to really hold systems accountable. Can you provide our listeners with some perspective on how a consumerized market will better serve those people who are underserved, underrepresented, to have more equitable access in, in healthcare and, and have better outcomes as a result of it? Yeah, um, I think COVID is really displayed the health inequities that we have. And it's a major challenge that is not just the healthcare systems problem. And I think this is something that hospitals have to get their minds around. This is a big challenge for value-based care. You know, you talked about earlier in the show about 
some of the challenges around value-based care. And one of them to me is that, you know, if a provider is going to get penalized because a patient goes home to an environment where they don't have anyone to help them, they don't have anyone to go get their medications, they don't have any, you know, they, they're not in a, an environment where they can clean their own wounds. I mean, their outcomes are going to be worse. So having the provider then get penalized for it then makes them want to go into the environment and start doing all this stuff, doing all this stuff to address those issues. In my mind, that is the role of the, the government and public health to fix those issues. It's not necessary, it's not the healthcare system. That is not to me a Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance problem. We have income inequality, we have education inequality, and those things then drive so much of the you can call it systemic racism. I think that's a bit of a loaded term, but there's definitely lopsided outcomes based on race. And those need to get fixed for everybody because we need everybody, regardless of sex, gender orientation, religion, whatever, to be able to do and achieve what they want to achieve because it's better emotionally and economically for all Americans. So it's everybody's problem. There are some interesting elements in the book that I think can really address this problem in a different kind of way. And one of them, and this is sort of outside the box, but we have to realize that the cost of a lot of care is a function of the availability of treatments and the price of those treatments. An example is like somebody who was blind, like go oh, 100 years ago. Let's, let's compare someone who was blind to somebody who had cancer. If you were blind 100 years ago, you were pretty onerous on your community because the way things worked, it was much more difficult for you to contribute and how things functioned, it was just harder for you to, to make any sort of contribution. If you got cancer, I mean, you died. <laughs> and it's odd, but like, you know, the, co the relative cost of care was different. Today, you know, if you're blind, we, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways for people to engage in the system, which is awesome. And if you get cancer, though, the cost of some of these treatments, $750,000 for some of these treatments is crazy. And so the cost of care itself is, is a function of, of a lot of what happens here. And one of the things I talked about in the book that I alluded to earlier is the different payment models for different types of things that happen. And what I'd like to be doing when I was designing this longitudinal healthcare plan, I thought to myself, well, what happens when we do genetic testing and we find out that someone has a really strong probability that they're going to develop something like MS? You know, it's expensive. You know, what do we say to those people? You know, there's a whole ethical issue of do we tell them or do we just budget enough money in the account for them to be able to pay for this? And what if they don't have enough money? I mean, everyone's going to sort of get something, but some things are more expensive than others. And one of the things that I'd like to see done that isn't done today that can help everybody is for some of these very serious conditions, be it cancer, multiple sclerosis, HIV, whatever they are, what we have now are these foundations where people... They put money in these foundations. The foundations have these big boards. They advocate to get coverage and insurance plans for you know, the diseases and conditions, and they do fundraising and all sorts of things. If you're an HIV patient, and you know, that's a chronic disease because you have a, a regular drug protocol, like a budget of drugs that you need to take probably for the rest of your life. 
What would be interesting to me would be something like the Elton John Foundation, who advocates for HIV AIDS funding. If they had a big chunk of money that was really like an annuity, and it just spun out payments to people. So that money, that coverage for HIV isn't quote unquote insured. It's not part of the traditional way we look at insuring and sharing the risk. It's pulled out. And those people who have these conditions can get access to direct pay to pay for these drugs. And that way it just shifts how we think about funding care. And that would be for everybody, regardless of your income status. You know, the trick is obviously going to be to make sure that the lower income folks and lower levels of education learn more about their health care, which is one of these reasons I really like mandating primary care visits so that we can do the preventive stuff. So a lot of these chronic diseases that are preventable don't happen and we can mitigate them and forestall their development. But then for the other stuff that is genetic and sort of comes out of the blue, I think we need to think about other ways to, to fund these things so we can address health equity in a different kind of way. Janice, I'm wondering if you could continue on Eric's question for a minute. I'd love to hear you talk more about something you mentioned in a podcast about the innovation that will happen in this type of model and how innovation and prices eventually become more affordable for people who are lower income and, and that the, the better technologies and solutions that this kind of model would create would make their way down to those? I think there are some innovations that we're doing with my company that can be used for anybody. And this gets into sort of a health literacy and what I call a navigation of the system. And, you know, we're developing these tools to bring them to the consumer market as part of us developing this sort of budget for people. But I certainly think they're applicable to anybody else. Our market is pre-Medicare, so using these sorts of tools in the Medicaid market, I think, could help a lot. And what I'm talking about is basically like a navigation system, and it's almost like a utilization control tool. If you were an employer or if you were someone who was funding this thing, it is something that can help control spending. And the idea would be that what's happened now is that people are very disassociated from their health and they're very disenfranchised and they don't want to spend money. And this it touches a little bit on the moral hazard issue where we not only have people who are not behaving in the best way possible for their good health, but we also have people who just aren't filling prescriptions. They're not going to get their preventive care that they need. They're not having preventive mammographies, even though they're covered under their insurance. They're just not doing the things that they need to do because they, they're afraid that they're going to engage with the healthcare system and they're going to be told one thing and then they're going to get stuck with a bill some way or another. And so they just stay away. We have to fix that. And it is totally fixable. There are tools out there now. They're just not curated to people. Janice, I just wanted to ask you about your vision for this future. As Americans, we have a responsibility to live healthy lives and contribute to a positive and productive society. And you've made it pretty clear that we must take more accountability for our individual health by focusing on prevention and wellness. It's imperative that we also support each other in our quest to elevate the greater good. 
if we are to win this race to value by having healthcare meet the American dream, what investments do you think we need to spend on treating sickness by investing in our people and education and infrastructure and innovation and safety as we face a new era potentially in American politics? How do you see the future unfolding? Can you uh, share with our listeners maybe your crystal ball and what your views are? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I would like to say that because Congress seems to be at a stalemate, it doesn't matter who's in office. (laughs) Uh, And maybe that's not realistic, but I think this should transcend all of that. I think probably one of the biggest challenges we have is we have a social accountability problem in America. We're just an unhealthy nation. And this is almost a generational issue. It's funny when people ask me about technology and doing all these investments and, you know, I'm a digital health startup company and all that sort of stuff. You know, one of our values is that technology isn't going to change healthcare. People will. It's behavior. We talked about it before, like 40% of your health outcomes are a function of your behavior. About 30% are genetics. So if you're going to make real and lasting change, we have to start addressing this social accountability problem. And it is a difficult situation. And I think this is not something that goes into the government's regulation of things. And a lot of this has to do with social media and how people communicate and how respectful they are of each other and how they celebrate some things that they shouldn't. I did a whole podcast about obesity and I, it's called the tragic normalization of obesity, that it's become normal. It is normal to be overweight because statistically most people are. And we have this fat shaming theme that goes on in social media where the second that somebody is overweight and somebody says something, then you know there's this cancel culture of everyone piling on. And we have to get to a point where we as a society realize that it is not okay to be overweight. It is not okay to be obese. It is unhealthy. It doesn't mean, it is a completely separate issue, your, your weight and your who you are as a person and what kind of contribution you can make to society. If you're overweight, it is an unhealthy situation. We have a lot of young people who are overweight. The millennial generation is going, is tracking to be the most obese generation in American history. They're not seeing the negatives of being obese yet because they haven't manifest. And somehow, somewhere in our social dialogue, we've got to start addressing this issue head on with people in a positive way because so much of this stuff is behavioral and has to do with our own personal accountability. I do think that there are a lot of terrific tools around health literacy, like I talked about. I have a lot of discussions with investors about the power of predictive analytics and using the genetics to do that. And a lot of folks think that's the answer. I don't think that's the answer. I think the vast majority of things we can pretty well predict. If you do some basic genetic testing, or you just ask about somebody's family history, I mean, that's your genetics right there. That's what we've been doing all along. I mean, there definitely are some pointed tests that we can use right now and they get better every day, but it's less around throwing all this technology and trying to predict stuff. And I think so much of it is just taking a step back and living a healthier life. And when we become so disassociated, especially with COVID, everybody is alone. 
They are attached, you know, we're using technology for all kinds of stuff. We're not going to the doctor, right? We're using telemedicine. We forget that so much of the healthcare system working has to do with us. It has to do with what we eat, how much exercise we get, and how much sleep we get. These are all things that people can control. Then you get into how much stress you have in your life and your social interactions. And we, we forget the simple stuff, but so much of it is just that. It really is simple. And you know, wearing a Fitbit that tells you, you, know, you should do this or that, or having a company monitoring your every move to, to tell you not to eat this or that thing. I don't, I don't wanna go into a big brother world like that where we're monitoring people at all. I would much prefer us to wanna be engaged because it really is pretty easy if we can all help each other and appreciate the benefits that we can get if we just do take the time to do some of the things that can really help us in the long run. So when I end my, my shows, I always say, we should be doing things to help us be as healthy as we can be. And it is a, a message I'd like to share with your listeners too. Well, Jess, thank you so much for joining us this week on Race to Value. I really love your perspective and you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, one final question is, how can our listeners learn more about the dream plan and the work you're doing with longitudinal healthcare? Well, I'd like to thank your listeners for listening to the whole show. You can certainly go to our website at longitudinalhealthcare.com to find us. You can Google me, Janice Powers, and it's J-A-N-I-S, like Joplin Powers. I'm on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. I've got a website. My show, The Powers Report Podcast, has about 30 episodes on it that are all different elements about the healthcare industry. And of course, you can look for my book, Healthcare Meet the American Dream. It's an Amazon bestseller. You can find it there. And please, if you have any questions or have any comments about what we're doing, I would love to hear from folks. I learn a lot that way. So please feel free to reach out to me. There's an email address on the Longitudinal website and on my Janice Powers website. I'm checking them all all the time. I'd love to hear from folks.